Christopher Walsh is the author of a new book entitled In the Wake of the Sun, Navigating the Southern Works of Cormac McCarthy, published by the University of Tennessee Library's Newfound Press. Knox County Public Library is proud to present this podcast edited from Dr. Walsh's remarks about his book and his favorite aspects of McCarthy's work. Uh, My name is Wes Morgan, and I'm a partially retired psychologist uh, from the university. Uh, back in, the, in a previous century, uh, Chris was an undergraduate student at the University of Wales in Swansea, and he participated in an exchange program in which he spent a year at the University of Tennessee. I recall that he once told me that during those very formative years, he learned an awful lot about our local culture including some deeply strange laws and regulations concerning the consumption of adult beverages. But that, that's a story that perhaps is best left until a little later in the evening. I first met Chris in the summer of 2003 when he came to Knoxville uh, to do research for his doctoral dissertation that was an, eventually entitled, You Talk Like a Goddamn Yankee, Cormac McCarthy and East Tennessee Exceptionalism. And I remember taking him on a walking tour of the community uh, and the various resources that we have that included special collections over at the university and, of course, the East Tennessee History Center, uh, now located in this very building. A year later, he returned to Knoxville to participate in the 25th anniversary celebration of the publication of the novel Sutri, uh, a conference that was organized by the Cormac McCarthy Society. His conference paper was entitled, The Fighting Parson, Sutry, and East Tennessee Exceptionalism, and it was a very well-received paper. I could not have been happier when, in August 2005, Chris, I will now say Dr. Walsh, returned to Knoxville and the University of Tennessee to accept an appointment in the Department of English, giving our students the opportunity to learn English the right way firsthand from a native English speaker. One of my undergraduate psychology honors advisees at that time provided me with rave reviews of his teaching in a literature class that she was taking from him. In the spring of 2007, during his second year on the faculty, Dr. Walsh almost single-handedly organized a very successful conference titled The Road Home, McCarthy's Imaginative Return to the South, that centered around McCarthy's most recent Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Road. It turned out to be a very popular and productive event, attracting scholars and readers from around the country and world. In addition, Chris presented a pre-conference book talk at the UT Library, as well as a conference paper entitled Post-Southern Sense of Place and The Road. Dr. Walsh has subsequently returned to London, England, where he lives with his wife, Nikki, and is currently employed as the Research and Publications Administrator of the College of Emergency Medicine. Just a few weeks ago, I visited the new Knoxville Catholic High School Library, and I looked over a number of old issues of the school newspaper. The September 19, 1950 issue of the Gold and Blue contained what I believe to be the first published words of Cormac, then Charlie McCarthy. The byline article concerned the author's visit to the Tennessee A&I Fair, 
during the school's fair day and contained on page three the following memorable McCarthy-esque sentence. Barkers were barking and sideshows were sideshowing and all was confusion. It's now time for me to stop talking and let Dr. Walsh begin to reduce our confusion about Cormac McCarthy's Southern Works. He will be talking about his new book titled In the Wake of the Sun, Navigating the Southern Works of Cormac McCarthy, just published by the Newfound Press at the University of Tennessee Libraries. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce my good friend and McCarthy scholar, Dr. Chris Walsh. Good evening. Um, I'll do my best to reduce any confusion, I promise. Um, Firstly, and most importantly, I'd like to thank the Centre staff for the work they've done in organising and publicising this talk, and for Linda Phillips at the Newfound Press for coordinating my visit. I'd also like to thank Wes very much for his very kind introduction and for his generosity several years ago, when upon arriving in Knoxville, uh, as without his existence, I would have definitely had some practical experience of what it feels like to be one of McCarthy's homeless characters. It's truly wonderful to have an opportunity to talk about the book in Knoxville at a time when interest in McCarthy is blossoming within and beyond academia. This evening, I'd like to briefly talk about the history of the project, its design, structure, and personal ideas and themes, especially in relation to the text themselves. I believe we have some time for questions and discussions, uh, and I'd be more than happy to take and attempt to answer any that you may have at the finish of the talk. The book represents something of a natural progression in my own work, following on from my PhD and my other research, which has always been centred around my interest in McCarthy and his relationship with Southern and Appalachian literary traditions. From his early short stories, Wake for Susan and A Drowning Incident, written as an undergraduate at the University of Tennessee, to his debut novel, The Orchard Keeper Onwards, McCarthy has been involved in an imaginative process which dissents, critiques, and records the complex interaction of myth and history in fictional form. And his interest in this relationship secures his place as one of the foremost contemporary American authors. As Kenneth Millard has observed, the United States has a history in which myth and mediation were crucially involved right from the beginning, so that writing has a special place in the formation of a national identity that became American. McCarthy's work and aesthetic, much like the region that inspired this collection of works, continues to be a complex, paradoxical, and yet ultimately rewarding cultural site. And these texts reveal how much these myths and narratives have given McCarthy, and, in turn, how much he has contributed to their continuing development and relevance. One of my aims in writing the book was to redress a certain imbalance in McCarthy scholarship, although this perceived imbalance is being levelled out as witnessed with the recent publication, for example, of Diane Luce's Reading the World, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee period. This is in no way a criticism of existing scholarship, and neither is it a fanciful claim for the book, but there is a perhaps inevitable tendency to focus on Blood Meridian, the Border Trilogy, and No Country for Old Men. At times without an acknowledgement of the remarkable collection of texts that precedes them. 
Without the risk of attracting some local antagonism, this imbalance is largely due to the persuasive durability that Western mythology holds in the popular imagination. And perhaps, after all, I should be worried that I'm more interested in the fate of a serial-killing necrophiliac than I am about the narrative of some quixotic and romantic ranch hands. Yet I admit that I've always found it somewhat frustrating, and it could well be that the Western works truly do warrant it, as they are the product of a more rounded and mature aesthetic, that the Western texts are lauded as representing a sophisticated engagement with and critique of the American cultural and historical experience, especially in the way in which myth is shown to be a simultaneously seductive yet destructive force. Yet the southern texts are engaged in exactly the same process, and it is the richness of these texts that is explored in the book. The southern texts have also perhaps unfairly suffered from being collectively grouped together as examples of southern Gothic, with all of the various connotations that has, and the relationship and the level of indebtedness to William Faulkner has certainly been overdetermined. It's only fair, however, to acknowledge the complexity of these texts, and it is not uncommon among students and readers to shy away from them, given their hybrid mixtures of styles, where conventional or realistic mimetic techniques bristle alongside mythical and mystical quests and allegorical narratives. The texts covered in the book, including two short stories, five novels, a play and a screenplay, have a reputation for complexity, and McCarthy is adept at grounding readers in familiar geographic or physical locales, while simultaneously making them feel homeless, rootless or disoriented in philosophical terms. Reading McCarthy is undoubtedly a rewarding experience, but he does make his work for it. All of his texts invite yet deny interpretation, meaning consistency of point of view and clarity of resolutions for characters or plots are frequently obscured by larger philosophical, mystical or cultural questions. One of my key aims and concerns was accessibility. The book is far from definitive or exhaustive, but I have endeavoured to situate the text in as many different contexts as possible, attempting throughout to identify patterns that emerge across the texts and the scholarship and critical debates surrounding them. I'm grateful to McCarthy scholar Jay Ellis for his insightful contributions to the book, from the general right down to the specific, such as the wording of the title. I eventually plumped for navigating the works of Cormac McCarthy as navigational or spatial metaphors are one of the most significant techniques used by McCarthy across these texts and it's my hope that the book will guide readers and students through them. The book also provides a contextual introduction which addresses notable cultural, aesthetic and biographical themes. This opening chapter was one of the most difficult to complete as the selection of themes may seem somewhat arbitrary and perhaps even slender. For example, attempting to outline McCarthy's relationship with the history of Southern literature warrants a book-length study of its own, but I have attempted to be as succinct as possible without, I hope, undermining the complexity and range of the themes covered. The book then goes on to work through the text in chronological and genre order, starting with the short stories, the novels themselves, the play The Stonemason, and the screenplay The Gardener's Son. Each chapter is then split into two parts. The first section 
provides detailed readings and analysis of the primary texts, and notable theoretical or critical debates are incorporated where relevant. The second part of each chapter comprehensively works through the critical responses to each text. It's my hope that readers will be familiar with the text and the critical responses to them and how they speak back to each other as McCarthy's work develops. And the book, hopefully, is designed for use before and after reading the text themselves. George Gilliman is not alone amongst McCarthy critics when he states that there is no way to retell his novels that would make them less multifaceted. But a series of key themes and concerns do emerge. Much of the melancholia readers detect in McCarthy's southern text is derived from the fact that he presents us with characters who are compelled to live by myths and cultural narratives that are no longer workable, and their mythic aspirations are constrained by the historical and material realities. These myths may well have faded in a recoverable historical consciousness or memory, but much of the dramatic tension of these texts ensues from his character's inability or unwillingness to recognise their dissolution. I've also attempted to demonstrate how the Southern texts critique culturally encoded myths, especially in McCarthy's treatment of agrarian or pastoral philosophy, as expressed by the Nashville agrarians. Many of the texts discussed are structured around transgressions and challenges to patriarchal authority in biographical, cultural and even theological terms, including the road, where McCarthy's traditional treatment of these themes is reversed. However, one other notable theme that I've addressed, and it's one that causes some problems, especially for female readers, is McCarthy's treatment of gender. Female characters simply don't really appear in these texts, and if they do, they only appear in marginal and serviceable roles. I've had the opportunity to discuss this in lectures, and many readers aren't necessarily convinced that the mythic reading, which claims that the absence of the female represents the essential destructiveness of patriarchal culture, gets McCarthy off the hook in this respect. Many critics argued that the patriarchal or Oedipal theme is the dominant one in McCarthy. But of late, I've been increasingly interested in and persuaded by another, in no small part influenced by the road. McCarthy's representation of the human and non-human world, tensions between natural and man-made space, and his emerging ecological consciousness, or what George Gilliman refers to as McCarthy's wilderness aesthetic, seem to be of central importance. And not just as a structural device which allows us to read the interiority of his characters. The road especially critiques conventional cartographic representations in an effort to reorient our ecological consciousness. And the road perhaps most urgently shows us the shift we need to make from a human-centred to a nature-centred system of values in order to recover the majesty of things that once hummed of mystery. Yet for all of these texts' darkness, gothicism and violence, we should also remind ourselves that McCarthy's texts evince a fundamental belief in narrative as an organising and perhaps even redemptive principle when all else seems to have dissolved and fragmented a theme that is evident from Awake for Susan onwards. Many readers find that McCarthy perhaps overindulges his narrative intelligence in The Orchard Keeper, 
but its mixture of styles and themes will become a hallmark of his aesthetic. The novel is involved in a sophisticated critique of historical and contemporary culture. As a decade of the novel's publication, the 1960s, and a decade of its setting, mainly the 1930s, witnessed epochal ideological changes in how the government viewed and indeed managed what the Appalachian historian Ronald Eller refers to as this other America. The South and Appalachia were becoming a contested site in both decades due to the TVA, the influence of agrarian thought as represented in I'll Take My Stand, their manifesto from 1930, and in the federal government's attitude towards the region, culminating in the passing of the Appalachian Regional Development Act in 1965. Moreover, the passing of the Wilderness Act in 1964 was a significant moment in how the very concept of wilderness and natural space was being managed from a legislative viewpoint. Therefore, the narrative structure and the issues it's engaging with are revealed to be incredibly ambitious for a debut effort. The novel also articulates one of the most important themes in McCarthy's whole body of work. On a Sunday drive, Marion Silder, the first of many of McCarthy's good bad men, is looking for a spot beyond what the narrative consciousness terms the dominion of laws either civil or spiritual. And although he gets lucky in this instance, the novel reveals the scarcity of such mythical and unregulated spaces. McCarthy's debut novel therefore becomes an allegory about displacement, change and loss in cultural political, and perhaps even ideological terms. However, for John Wesley Ratner, the novel's central protagonist and perhaps narrator, narrative consciousness becomes his transcendence. And in much the same way as narrative itself and McAnally Flats operate for Sutri, Red Branch becomes an internalised geography or site of resistance for him as he leaves, seemingly for good, at novel's end. Outer Dark, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, is a novel that I've struggled with. Um, I, I, I think it's probably the toughest and most complex from his body of work. It's a relentlessly dark road narrative that turns back in on itself, spatially and thematically. The narrative consciousness asks a series of profound and impenetrable metaphysical questions, with the most pronounced exploring the consequences we face if we, like Colour Home, renounce our claims to self-authorship and the telling of our own story in the world. These themes have been intelligently and insightfully dealt with by Edwin Arnold, a notable McCarthy scholar. The novel also presents a real challenge in its treatment of gender. Does, for example, the mythic or allegorical reading satisfy, or does Rinthy Home, the novel's leading female protagonist, betray McCarthy's and perhaps his culture's latent misogyny? However, these charges are countered by his use of myth and allegory, through which modes McCarthy explores themes about sin, guilt, redemption, punishment and justice. The third novel is Child of God, and the moment the agrarians truly dreaded opens the novel, where their ideal of land use is dispossessed by the machinations of aggressive finance and market capitalism manifested in the real estate auction that opens the novel. However, McCarthy uses Lester Ballard's story to critique such ethical, political and cultural boundaries. Sutri, the metropolitan novel, 
positively hummed with a vibrant oppositional sensibility. But one of the more melancholic aspects of the novel is that the rue de forms referred to in the novel's memorable prologue fall victim to the process of embourgeoisement that Brian Jarvis argues was taking place in 1950s American culture. Many readers are frustrated by a lack of coherent development in Sutri. But I'd argue that Sutri does develop and mature in a relatively conventional novelistic manner, and he successfully emerges from his chrysalis of doom, which ensures that the novel ends on something of an upbeat note. The novel's status as an allegory about an emerging artistic consciousness can be explained if we read Sutri as an epistolary novel, a letter from Cormac McCarthy to his father, as William Prather contends. Like many of the texts which follow it, Sutri can also be read as a novel about borders, crossings and tensions. Between rational intelligence and mystical knowledge, orientation and disorientation, amongst many others. A strong comparative link can also be made with The Orchard Keeper, as Sutri leaves Knoxville with an internalised geography or narrative of opposition, if you will, as does John Wesley Ratner. The Stonemason, as other critics have persuasively argued, is McCarthy's first attempt at playwriting, could best be read as a commentary on his whole aesthetic, how he writes, the importance of narrative and storytelling. Jeffrey, one of McCarthy's many marginal prophet characters, offers perhaps one of the most succinct summaries of Ben Telfair's position in the play. Ben is a main protagonist, but Geoffrey's assessment is applicable to many of McCarthy's characters. History done swallowed you up, except you don't even know it. Against this backdrop of oppression and emasculation, the stonemason therefore becomes another of his works where history transcends the power and validity of myth to ground oneself in the world, to use it as a workable solution to navigate oneself through the world. In The Gardener's Son, McCarthy uses the text to suggest that fiction may well present a more inclusive and comprehensive account than official history ever can. And McCarthy uses the teleplay to critique existing power structures and rules of exclusion. Once again, there is a strong allegorical function at play as we are urged to recognise the dangers his characters face when denied the power to tell or narrate their own stories. His southern work can therefore be viewed as part of a broader Appalachian discourse which critiques foundational southern and American myths and cultural narratives. This discourse gives a voice to those individuals and groups who inhabit this other America and who have been absented or silenced from official histories, records and artefacts. The works discussed in this study particularly critique pastoral ideology, and the emergence of McCarthy's wilderness aesthetic is perhaps the most notable development across the text that I've covered. Thank you for listening, and I'll be happy to take any questions that you may have. Mm-hmm. I was trying to explain 
Um, well, I know a lot of people from different cultures, especially, get a bit dismayed with the watermelon scene. Um, how you explain that to anyone is, is often quite quite tricky. But the, the watermelon scene with Jane, yeah, that's um, you know that causes some issues. But this is one of the big big tensions that that I've tried to, and it's all about perhaps with navigating in the, the detail. Not that you just get lost physically, but the detail is relentless. Uh, even if you perhaps remembered that city in the years that the novel is set. I'm sure at times you'd, you'd still be looking at it and thinking, hang about, was that really there or is this a kind of invention? And it's one of the tricks, I think, that he pulls, that he tries to make you in- incredibly familiar with a locale and yet all the time there are all these little subtle references to much larger questions that just go beyond the specific concrete block or setting or city where he's writing. And it's a juggling act when you're reading it that I think is that you almost have to recognise that this local data, if you will, is relentless and it's real, but you've got to look out for the other little hooks he's throwing you. Because all the way through it, there'll be different themes and different questions that the narrative consciousness is kind of throwing up and getting you to think about and getting you to inquire about. And they're the details that you're really onto something. They're the really rewarding paths that you go down, if that makes, if that makes sense. Ian Sutri as well, you've got the whole idea that the city itself is, is more of the consciousness as well, of the protagonist. And what he's very, very good at, very good at, and, and again, it's a nice cheery theme for an early kind of spring or summer evening, is that some of the most memorable passages is where he just makes us realise how insignificant and how much of a blip kind of human culture is. And for all of this kind of learning, for all of how advanced or fancy we think we've got, it's... No, we are like that in terms of timescales and geographical patterns and geological time. He makes you work for it, but once you get into that, the way he does things there, it's a very rewarding setup, I think. You'll have passages of the most dense kind of lyrical, um, it's almost kind of prose poetry, that will then switch around to just moments of comedy uh, and concrete descriptions of space. And it will then switch around again from focusing on a character to intensely descriptive passages about landscape. Um, and how that embodies or reflects interiority or how the characters operate. The fancy way of saying it is that these texts invite and then they deny interpretation. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down and I thought, I've got it, I've got it, and I wake up the next morning and I'm like, no, I haven't. You idiot, Chris, what the hell? We, I've woken up at three in the morning and scribbled something down, and that's the thing. And you read it again, and it's like, oh, you tease. You, it's just an incredibly frustrating, because how do you even keep track of who's saying what? In Out of Dark, you'll have the narrative voice that then goes to a character, that then goes to the landscape, that goes back to the narrative voice, that goes back to a character with no punctuation. I think at one point of that is to get the real legitimacy and fluency of a character's voice. Um, so it doesn't have the almost artificialness of he said, she said. And I think you're switching around. But of course, just keeping track of who's going can be incredibly difficult there. Um, but I think, it's again, it's one of the little styles. Once you pick up... And again, he makes you work for it. But if you realise, he's not going to give you those little... Um, Noel Polk, the Faulkner scholar, had this memorable phrase um, in one of his articles about Sutri. He talked about Faulkner's visual vocabulary. So quotation marks, semicolons, colons, dashes. That that will guide you through the structure and the layout of a text. And say, oh, OK, OK, I'm being signposted here. I know what's going on. But in McCarthy, you don't get that. And again, it's that feeling of you're at home and you're not at home you could have one of the most memorable descriptions of Gay Street and yet you've got this great big Old Testament voice that comes in in the very next passage and say, it's doom laden, don't go down there. Um, so the, the structure of dialogue 
and the incorporation of dialogue is another one of those little tensions that you suddenly think you've got it and then you're kind of rootless again. But it, it's a common frustration. I think it's, it's again, it, it's, it's part of the inventiveness and the richness of, of what he does. Again, it can be incredibly frustrating because what is this? Um, but I think what he does, instead of just completely inventing terms or words, they're often derivatives of very, very old kind of perhaps Anglo-Saxon or kind of Celtic words. So they're, they're way back to how perhaps words or phrases have been corrupted. Um, no, no, you've, uh, they're, they're not. And that's where you get down to the old kind of Gnostic dictionaries and things like that. That's when you need the old dusty kind of Lord of the Rings wizard dictionaries to have a look what's going on. Um, but yeah, that's the, and again, it's, it's, it's just returning to the way in which he tries to make you work and the, the mixture of styles that he has going on. And of course, from the flip side of, of not being obviously a, a local, one other thing that a lot of students when I've taught him in the UK have found is the dialogue, which I know when I've been here, everybody says that's bang on, it's perfect. And then you try teaching that to a group of disgruntled 18-year-olds from Hull, and uh, that can be quite a challenge. I mean, people in Hull can't understand each other, let alone anybody else. So, uh, uh, yeah, it did. and again, whereas everybody here, that seems that's natural, it's very authentic, um, but that, that poses its own challenges. Like I've said, I openly admit that there have been numerous times, and you may even think it reading it, where you think you've got it sussed, you think you've got one thing figured out, and he does his absolute best to just pull the rug from under your feet in a, perhaps even the next passage or the next chapter, and that can be a feature of it. So that mixture of styles is one of the strengths, but also one of the most frustrating elements. Um, and what I've tried to do in the book is, is show you how he uses these combination of themes across the text and also try and include some resolution as to how you might be able to think about it and why he actually does that. Why did you include the road in the sermon? I think, um, and again, I'm indebted to a lot of Wes's work. Geographically, Wes has produced some work where it's traced out that the path they travel is further south. I think at the conference we held in 2007, uh, which which you can still view online, I believe, in the presentations, there are some papers that deal with that, that the actual route that's outlined. And I think some people got it pretty disastrously wrong in some early reviews. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Whereas I think... It, I think, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just getting a nod from the man in the nose. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's, that, that's right. And it literally is in many ways a homecoming, um, perhaps biographically... Uh, and the states of, his, of McCarthy's own life with becoming a father at that stage in life. Um, it's about the reconsideration of that theme. Um, but as I've, as I've made out, the theme that I've also become increasingly convinced by in the road is the, the, the patriarchal theme, the fathers and sons. It's always there. It's always a central concern. But also with the road, and I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, um, I saw it, we had one of the worst winters for years in England. And it probably wasn't the best decision to go and see it on a freezing, freezing cold January afternoon. And I kind of thought, that's it, I need a couple of hours, and I should have known. Um, yeah, there wasn't too much sunshine in it. But one of the things with the road that culminates in a lot of the other southern texts is the description of the environment. And I think the allegory at play there, of course, that the front story, the front tower is it's this father and son and of course that dominates but if you look throughout as well there's these series of kind of warnings almost if you will and parables of the damage perhaps even irreversible damage that's been done to the environment and to the ecology and I, I personally think 
and I'm becoming increasingly persuaded by that's as important as the father and son story. But I know a lot of people disagree with that. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And realizing their true inner passion. Do you think it, it, they are thwarted by things that human convention has created, or perhaps by an indifferent or even malevolent universe? Um, both. Again, there's no definitive answer. Uh, it's, that's an excellent question. I think what McCarthy has always been very suspicious of is the whole idea of regulation um, and hubris. And our accomplishments, just once we think we've got something figured out, there's always this scepticism there. It's like, no, no, we haven't. There's this scepticism and this, this uncertainty about don't, don't follow that too much. Out of Dark, not so much, but I think in The Orchard Keeper, Child of God and Suttery, there's this real tension against um, kind of organic or just true kind of ways that people want to live. And the pressure sometimes in very overt, sometimes in very subtle ways of kind of regulatory power or agencies whatever that might be kind of government agencies or civil authorities and that is one of the tensions and one of the real causes of tension and sorrow and in the book that you have these older kind of mythic or mystical quests and they're bristling they're rubbing up alongside increasing patterns of just regulation they're being told you know you can you should be able to go anywhere and do anything um and yet the material reality they're facing is saying, no, you can't do that. Does that make sense? And then you have this much deeper, um, the mystical element voice as well. It's all about finding that sense of orientation where, where the kind of navigating idea comes from. It's just what is the proper place? What is the real kind of makeup of the cosmos and our place in it? He, he's so good at capturing times and places at people at the moment that they're kind of disappearing. At the moment, it's kind of uh, one critic referred to the altar keeper as both elegy and eulogy. And I think that kind of idea can be extended to so many of his works and such as well. It's it's this culture caught at the very moment that it's kind of receding and going away. Um, And that's that's the kind of how the text remains so durable and so powerful, I feel. So. Mm-hmm. I think for readers and, and teachers, I've, there are two things. Hopefully, you can use it before and after. Um, so it's used to perhaps gather and generate some ideas, and then for reflective learning as well, uh, you can go back on. What's aimed at is, is the whole idea of accessibility, that anybody could pick it up at any level of teaching or scholarship or any kind of level of student, and it just clarifies all of the major themes and responses, but hopefully without undermining the complexity and the integrity of the themes at hand so it gives you everything you need to know and will get you thinking about how he does things and the themes that that overlap and it shows you the other critics perhaps that get perhaps that bit more specialized um one thing i've tried to do and this is not a uh, a jibe at this style of writing at all is is try to make it as jargon free as possible uh, so hopefully for teachers and students that that's something that would help out as well Yeah. 
Um, hard. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think much with, with, with how popular the, the reading has been, just in terms of you seeing his books in more places, uh, and, and the ease of which he's kind of referenced to in the kind of popular press and consciousness, I think probably the next step for McCarthy's scholarship, and it's growing, it's, it's growing very, very quickly. There have been a couple of attempts so far, but perhaps it's the real comparative angle. Uh, and one of the, in, in the Child of God chapter, there's an excellent book by, is it Gary Tuber? Is it, I can't remember he's uh, pronounced the last name, where he compares McCarthy um, with a whole group of other Southern authors. And it's a really strong comparison. Um, very, very interesting angle. And I think that perhaps might be one of the next big developments where the comparative analysis, and not just in terms of um, American lit, I think there's probably some, some very strong kind of international and perhaps uh, Eastern philosophical and literary links that could be made there. So maybe that's the, that's the next step. I'll remember I said that now tonight, see if it comes true. I, I was chatting actually to, um, uh, to some colleagues earlier on. When I started out 10 years ago, I started my PhD um, and I couldn't find the books anywhere. Um, and it's incredible now. I allow myself a, a little smirk. There's been a few times on the tube or on the bus and I see someone with the road. And it's like, okay, it's going to get dark, you know. And I just kind of walk off. Um, you know, <laughs> I offer some kind of cryptic marginal-like quote and they just leave them baffled and uh, the police come and find me eventually. Um, but, but after that, it's the southern studies has always had a very very strong um, appeal both in terms of popular and academic programs and, and, and interest in the UK so because it's got that um, it's got that mystique it's got that weirdness all of the vampire programs all that kind of stuff at the moment so um, yeah, yeah it has a very very strong appeal I think at times perhaps again I kind of briefly alluded to it perhaps McCarthy is it's a really easy thing to go oh that's southern gothic what the hell is that what the hell does that really, really does that mean? It's kind of, at times, I think, a bit of a lazy way to explain a text or, or a way of writing without really perhaps getting into its representations. But it's, it's a very persuasive and durable kind of idea. It's certainly very popular. Sutri, undoubtedly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I know Blood Meridian, is, it's hard to kind of argue with the, the accomplishment of that, but um, I like the messiness of Sartre. I like the fact that it isn't, um, that you've got to dig, it kind of makes you get lost, it is kind of sprawling, it's a bit, um, it's not really kind of cohesive and perfectly polished. Um, I like that, and it's funny as well. Um, Jay Ellis remarked that, not exclusively, but that humour recedes somewhat as he kind of makes that move. And I think it just has that, that mixture. It has everything going on. Everything that, that makes him a truly, truly great, great author is in that book. Perhaps at times what readers struggle with is the violence and a lot of the darkness of the imagery. I think one of the most persuasive looks at Sutri, it's a spiritual quest. He's on a search there. It, although it may be that there's a, there's a real core of darkness and there's a real emptiness, all the way through it, that's just a search for meaning in, in a very grand, very grand tradition, filtered through perhaps some existentialist texts and the absurd and, and things like that. But it goes back to those allegories for meaning, a search for meaning. Yeah. <laughs> I've done some practical research into it, and it certainly gets you in trouble. Yeah, it's, uh, 
no, no, but I, but I think that's one of the easiest ways with Sutri. It's almost um, you've got that very old idea of, of walking through the city, and it's all picaresque. If you get into that, almost the, it, it's the rhythm of it not being rhythmical. It's episodes, and it's all kind of fragmentary, and it's all. It doesn't appear obviously on the pages. Perhaps the road does in that very lean, very kind of eclectic style. Yet, for all of the, the massive detail, you've got these successions of little picaresque kind of characters and episodes and that's what kind of gets you hooked into it I think at times <laughs> well funny enough last night when I was walking home there was somebody at an upstairs window just pointing at me and uh, <laughs> saying you shouldn't have come um, no it's uh, it, it, it's well it's cleaned up isn't it immensely since then <laughs> Uh, there's, uh, uh, how am I going to get out alive now? No, I know you've got, uh, but that's part of the part of the charm with um, with Sutri is the fact that it has that kind of messiness to it all the way through it. I think that is that. I'm going to scope to the brew pub or, or other haunts. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Knox County Public Library hopes you have enjoyed this podcast. For other podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.